Hope you got into a good conversation. For those who are listening, given the aforementioned birthday, I am passionate about coffee. I'm passionate about Legos. I'm passionate about books, good restaurants. These are things I'm passionate about as we approach my birthday, just sharing those things. I hope you got into a good conversation about that. Um, honestly, I'm just joking about my passion. I have some deeper passions than Legos, but those are one of them. Um, I, I actually am asking for all of you to consider coming to my birthday party next weekend. Like when I was a little kid, you can fact check this with my mom. I think I was maybe seven, like my, my niece's age. And I came home and I was like, mom, I invited the whole school to my birthday party. And she was like, let's make it happen. So really she's enabled this. So you can check it with her, but please join. We would love to have you. It's going to be fun. There's no food budget. Bring some cupcakes. It's going to be great. So please consider, I even put it on the church website. So you can go to the events page. What, who puts their birthday party on the church website? Me. So there we're at. Um, I, I hope you had a good conversation about what you're passionate about. I heard some interesting ones. I know Pastor Donna is passionate about finding the best pizza. That's what I've heard multiple times from her. She's Her passions are solid and consistent. Uh, Leah told me, who was up here singing, that she's passionate about bringing back the side ponytail. And so that's there. Um, you can talk with her about that later. I I know that some of you probably brought up some of those passions. Um, I'm sure that you all have deeper ones too. I'm positive about that because I talked to you about this. You all have a lot of deep passions in your life, things that you care very deeply about, whether it's justice issues or certain people groups you're passionate about or places or your, your work or uh, healing and wholeness and, and uh, well-being and health. Like, there's so many passions I've heard from all of you. And what you've maybe heard me say before is that I believe that God has wired us for purpose and belonging. This is something that God has wired us for. And so that, in my opinion, means that the passions that you have in your life, God put them there. And God put them there for a reason, as God created you in the image of God. And so I think our collective passions as a community, as a church, are all about how we can live out our passion of our mission, to love our community in the name of Jesus. Our passions matter so much in that way. Now, I do really believe also that in this next few months and these next few years, uh, that God's going to open up more deeper ways for us to live out our mission as a church. So if you're just joining in, that's what you're getting involved in. I really believe this. I believe that God is going to open up new ways for us to step boldly into our mission to love our community in the name of Jesus. And all of you and your passions are a deep part of that. And I'm excited about that. And I think there's so much potential we also have to go deeper in belonging and community and create a space of belonging for other people. But I do want to bring up a tension that I feel. And I feel this tension both as a pastor, but also just as a person. And that is that I think that we're living in a world where our passions are easily dimmed. And I think we're living in a world where our relationships are easily warped or just broken altogether. And I know that many of you have experienced that, where you, you feel like those passions, the flame has just gone out. And you, and you feel like those relationships are just so broken. Could there ever be anything that could come from that? So when it comes to purpose and belonging, I want to suggest that many of us are not experiencing, the word I'm going to use today is wholeness in that. And that, that, that is something that we experience, all of us, in our lives. That we're not always experiencing wholeness when it comes to belonging, when it comes to purpose in our lives. But I do believe that God wants more for us. I believe that if we pursue a Jesus-centered life, it invites us into healing and wholeness in our everyday lives, and that can be so deeply life-giving. I think Jesus was serious when in John 10, 10, one of my favorite verses, he said, I came so that you could have life and you could have it to the full. Notice it didn't say perfect life. Notice it didn't say life without any problems, but full life. 
I believe that that's something that Jesus wants for us. And so this is the, the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, some of you are, one of the biggest areas of diversity at Mill City is spiritual background. So some of you had Lent in a part of your life growing up and some of you didn't. Uh, simply what it is, it's the count, kind of countdown to Easter, the, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And so this is a season where we turn towards that, where we turn towards the cross and we're moving towards Jesus in this time. And there's lots of different ways that people engage with this time. And so as we are head together, I want to encourage you and just offer a question. And, and this question, I'm just going to put it out here right away. The question for today, but I'm also hoping it can be a question that we all ask as we go through this season of Lent. Okay, so I'll put it up on the screen. Question is, in what areas of your life might God bring resurrection and wholeness in this season? Would you just wonder about that with me for your life? And, and maybe as a collective, what are ways that God wants to bring resurrection and wholeness? I, like I said, I believe this is an important season in the life of our church. And so if we pursue deeper wholeness and healing, I think that there's a lot at stake and, and a lot of things that can happen. So as we explore this together, uh, we're going to start up this new conversation today, starting out in Lent. And we decided to call this Lenten series Messiah. Messiah. It is the, the Hebrew word that basically literally means anointed one. And it's the concept in the Jewish community in the first century and looking back over the Jewish history of this person that they're waiting for, the anointed one, the line of David, a king, the anointed king, the Messiah, who is going to save the people. And so looking back on the story, we now know Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And the story we'll look at today will highlight that. So what we're going to do is we're going to just start in the middle of the book of John, kind of looking at Jesus' last few weeks before the, the cross as we go through Lent together. And we're going to think about Jesus as Messiah and think about how he's in this Jewish context as a Jewish person. And when we acknowledge and recognize that culture, it can give us deeper meaning. Um, and it's important to recognize uh, the, the, how critical it is that he was coming into the world in this time. So we're going to be looking at John 11. So if you have a Bible, would you grab it? I'm going to actually go through a lot of the story today. I'm hoping that's okay with you. I'm going to let the story speak for itself a lot. We're gonna, so if you have an app or we'll have it up on the screen for you. Um, but I want you to just follow along. We're jumping into the story where Jesus has done lots of miracles, but many scholars would say this moment in the story is Jesus' ultimate miracle. His, his pinnacle miracle of all the miracles that have happened, the most climactic mir uh, miracle in all of the story. The story begins with a set of siblings, three of them, two sisters and a brother. Uh, they're friends with Jesus, Lazarus, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. So as we jump into the story together, um, we'll be reading it, but I want you just to imagine, maybe, maybe as you follow along, you just want to imagine in your mind uh, this story, because it's, it's dramatic. This is a dramatic story. And so I just welcome you into imagining this story with me as we read, and I'll read some different parts as we go along. Starting in verse 1, 11-1. One. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now laying sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, pay attention here, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples after those two days, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there trying to stone you, and yet you want to go back? Let's pause there for just a minute. Can I point out a couple of things? When Jesus hears that his friend is sick, it says, John's saying that he loved them so much that he didn't go right away. He stayed. That doesn't make sense, right? 
Why did he stay? Curious. Let's pay attention to the story. It's kind of like one of those sitcoms where they're telling you things early in the story and you figure out why. So why would Jesus stay for two days? Interesting. Also, notice that the disciples question Jesus. Why would you want to go back to Judea? Don't you remember? Of course he remembers. It was not that long ago. Look at chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, where they're trying to stone him. People are picking up stones to kill him. I mean, this is like a brutal, dramatic thing, right? And it says in John 10, John 10, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. How hardcore is that? Like, Jesus, can you imagine? He's avoiding these mobs, trying to stone him. So when the disciples question his desire to return, it makes sense, right? Why would you do that? At this point in the story, the disciples find out that Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus, they're thinking, well, Lazarus is, is just sick. Like, he's going to be fine. But I want to say, like, after they kind of point that out to Jesus, they're like, he's probably going to be fine. He'll, he'll wake up back up. He'll be okay. And then right here in, in verse 14, look how plainly Jesus says. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Like, you guys, no, he's not just sick. He's gone. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. That's weird too, right? I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. What? But let us go to him. Okay, he's dead. Glad I wasn't there. Let's go now, two days later. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, same person that is known as Doubting Thomas later on, he has given that kind of uh, name, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. I think it's important here to point out that, that Thomas, who often gets a bad rap, is the one who is willing to be resigned to say, hey, if he's going to go back where he's going to get stoned, we're going to go too. And what they don't realize is that he's going to die, but he's going to die on their behalf. So now as we continue to imagine the scene, it's getting pretty dramatic, right? Jesus is heading with the disciples, and, and they get there, and Jesus arrives to be told that Lazarus has already been dead and in a tomb and buried for four days. Jesus already knows this. It was Jewish custom to lay someone to rest the day that they passed. And so most likely, Lazarus had been in that tomb since the day that he had passed. And some people in the Jewish culture at that time believed that the soul didn't totally leave the body until the third day. So Jesus intentionally waits to go on the fourth day so that what he's about to do would be something that would be easy to prove was a complete and total miracle. No, like, soul leftovers happening in the sky, okay? So let's continue reading. Just imagine this with me in verse 21. We'll skip to verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, so she has come out to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Right away, she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. There it is, Messiah. I believe that you are the anointed one, the king of the line of David, who has come to save us. Martha and Mary both left their home uh, they would have been sitting Shiva for seven days. I mean, seven in Hebrew. They would have been sitting in the, on the floor in the middle of their house, and people would come and attend to them while they were mourning. This is a part of the Many still practice something like it today. And as the mourners are coming and bringing them food, remember, this is the fourth day. So the fact that Mary and Martha get up and leave the house is very odd, and everyone follows them. You will see. And so now as they step out of the house, Mary joins them, and we'll skip over to verse 32 and listen to how Mary responds. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the same thing. 
when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her from the house, right, are also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Some of you know that's the shortest verse in the Bible, but perhaps the deepest meaning. In fact, so much so, we're going to have an entire sermon on that next, so we'll put a pin in that. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? Like, look, he's weeping over him. But some of them said, could not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved. Just imagine this. He comes over to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. She's just being practical. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of these people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let me, let me say I am pretty sure that the people who rushed to do that was Mary and Martha. They ran to him and took those grave cloths off. And most scholars would agree that it is most likely that it was those two women that wrapped those cloths in the first place. Because at that time in society, wrapping a dead body was so unclean that men would not do it. And so most likely it was his sisters that wrapped around his body the cloths on his hands and his feet and his torso and his head. And here they are four days later unwrapping those very same cloths. One of my favorite commentaries that I read every time that we're looking at the New Testament is called the, the Jewish New Testament Commentary. And it's by a Jewish scholar named David Stern. And I want you just to look at, I just thought he put it so well, the greatness of this miracle and what Jesus has done. Let me read it for you. I'll have it on the screen. He says, nowhere in biblical or even secular history is there an instance of anyone medically dead for four days to the point where there would be an odor being physically raised from the dead. The incident is reported in such a way that no one misses its significance. Yeshua, or the Hebrew name for Jesus, has physically brought back to life a four days dead stinking corpse. And this miracle crowns Yeshua's career prior to his own death and resurrection. This is what produced the profound reaction among the populace and reported in the rest of this in the following chapter. What happens starting now, right here in the rest of this, what is that reaction that this scholar is talking about? Well, first of all, many people believe all of those people just saw him bring somebody back from, to life. I mean, that's amazing. Word spreads about Jesus, but it also spreads to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin at the time was the most powerful court in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish kind of religious center. And while they had a lot of power in their own community, they had very little power in society. It's important that we remember that the, the, the Bible is written by people who were a part of oppressed people groups. They were not in power at this time. The Romans were. And so as the word gets to the Sanhedrin, you see something very interesting. It's stated very clearly here in the chapter. They were scared. They were scared. 
It wasn't that they just wanted all the power to themselves. They were scared. It says in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Let's not blame them for things that are motivated by fear because we know how easy it is to let fear take control. And so they're afraid of losing everything. And so it's so interesting, uh, Caiaphas in verse 50, he's the, the chief priest at the time. He makes this argument. Listen to this. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He had no idea how prophetic it was what he was saying. Because not only did Jesus die for one nation, but for the whole world. And sometimes God speaks through, through people that don't even know it. So what is the final reaction to the greatest miracle in history up to that point? Right, verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That's the response. And then the rest of the book of John is showing that because of this incredible miracle, the ball is set, the, 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 the thing is rolling now downhill towards Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm hoping that for us now, we have hindsight bias, right? So we can have a different reaction to the greatest miracle of Jesus than fear and all these different things. Yet what we see happen with the humans, I think, in this story is comforting in the sense that I see a lot of us now in their story. When you're looking at any, any scripture story, um, I want to encourage you. There's two questions you can always ask. What is God doing in this story and what are the humans doing? And it's interesting sometimes to see the difference, okay? So some of us are going through the Bible in a year, just wonder, like, what does this say about God and what does this say about the human condition? And so while this says a lot about Jesus that I'll talk about in a minute, let's just stop and just say, even though Jesus is the main character, what are these humans doing? I think what we see is that the humans are hitting against barriers in their life. And I look at these barriers and I recognize them in my own life. Maybe you do too. Uh, I see three of them. First of all, the barrier of timing. Barrier of timing. It's not the timing that they would choose for Jesus to do the miracle, is it? Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Why didn't you just heal him in the first place? If you can heal, heal a blind man, why would you let this happen? Mary says if you, would be here, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Martha says the same thing. And then when it comes to the rolling the stone away, they say it's too late, Jesus. Do we struggle with that barrier of, of God's timing versus the timing we want? Absolutely. And here in the story, we just see they're so consumed with the timing that they would have want that they almost miss what Jesus is trying to do right then. Second barrier I see is a barrier of fear. Once again, I just, we've, we've all been there at times. It's one of like the tricks of the enemy. The enemy's not creative. Fear is a big one. And so here we see that they're trying to stone him. Don't go back there, Jesus. Like there's fear. I don't, we shouldn't go back. It's dangerous. The, the, the Sanhedrin is afraid. We're afraid of the Romans. There's fear. And you see how the fear is keeping them and holding them back. The disciples are like, Lazarus is probably just sick. He'll be fine. He's not dead yet, but he is. And so the barriers of fear almost keep them from going back, but they decide to go. And if they wouldn't have, they would have missed the miracle. And then the third thing I see is barriers of doubt. Barriers of doubt. Now, if you know me, you know that I believe that doubt is something that can actually take us deeper in our faith. If we're willing to press into our questions, into our doubt, instead of run from them, you'll go to deep places of meaning that you never have been to before. So it's not that is inherently not okay, but you can see in the story how this doubt is keeping them from seeing what Jesus is doing right in this moment. This idea of like, if Jesus wanted to do this, he would have already done it. If God doesn't do it how we expect, then we're not expecting anything at all. Do you see how they're not expecting? I mean, in this story, it's almost like Jesus has to do this in spite of the humans. If you think about it, nobody asks him to directly come to Judea. Nobody asks him to heal 
Lazarus from the sickness. Nobody asks him to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus does it anyway, in spite of the humans and the barriers that they have, even the barrier of doubt. Martha's response, it's, it's a, a statement of belief. Yes, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you will, you know, he will res be resurrected in the last days. Yes, and she wasn't wrong. Jesus says in verse 4, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son might be glorified. But that's tricky, right? Because Lazarus did die. So it's confusing, but it does not end in death. So it comes back to this question for all of us. When it comes to the, what God's doing in your life, what barriers do you face? I see myself in all of them. I see issues with timing where I think God should do something in the time that I want. And I, maybe there's fear, anxiety that holds you back. Have you noticed that in your life? Maybe it's doubt. Doubt that God's going to work the way that you want God to. Or maybe it's just been a really long time since you felt like God has done anything around you. That's okay. We all face these barriers at times. Can we just normalize that for a minute? Can we just say this is a shame-free zone and just say, hey, these barriers are real. We all face them. The question is what we're going to do about them. But that doesn't mean that we're alone in facing these barriers. But the truth is, is that it can keep us from seeing what Jesus is doing around us and for the life that Jesus says that he offers. So there's a lot that we can point out about what Jesus does in this passage, but I want us to zero in on what he says to Martha in verse 25. We'll put it up on the screen. He hasn't even performed the miracle yet. And what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then right away she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. You are the Messiah, the anointed king, the line of David, the one we've been waiting for. Martha believes this. So Jesus is saying here, I am the resurrection and the life. And then it's almost like a riddle. Doesn't it feel like a little bit like a riddle? He's like, and then if you, if you believe, and another way to maybe swap that out would be trust, believe or trust. The one who trusts in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by trusting in me will never die. It seems kind of like a riddle. But if you just zoom out and you look at what he's saying, I think there's two main things that he's saying. The reality is that the future hope of everlasting life with Jesus is that we will have healing forever, right? That is part of it, the resurrection and the life. But also that living by trusting or believing in Jesus now means we can experience resurrection in our lives now. I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. It's both. It's both experiencing resurrection in life now and the promised future resurrection in life that we all will experience if we trust Jesus. The story of Lazarus is this pinnacle miracle. But even Lazarus died again, like again. <laughs> like, he died, like he died again, right? He's just a human. But Jesus says even though he dies, he will live. Because that's the future hope that Lazarus had just like we do. Jesus could have just said, hey, future resurrection, sorry. He was filled with compassion, but he wanted to bring glory to God, to lead people to believe that he was the Messiah. And Jesus wanted to do something in that guy Lazarus' life right now, not just in the future. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not only for eternity, but for our lives now. I just want to encourage you to open your mind and your heart to how Jesus is the life bringer, the life restorer, the one who can bring life to something that we thought was totally dead. I know some of you have seen it. Throughout the stories in the New Testament, Jesus showed that he was the healer, bondage breaker, the life restorer. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not just in the future hope, but also now. And also then. And I continue now. We are out 
the continuation of the story of the church, awaiting Jesus' return to restore all things, and we get to experience resurrection in our lives right now. Resurrection of relationships that we thought were hopeless. New life found in freedom from addiction and unforgiveness and competition and despair and strongholds like that in our life. Strongholds are things that hold us back from what God wants for us. Resurrections of dreams that we thought had long died. New life as we experience fullness and things that have been broken for a long time. So I want to bring back this question from the beginning. In what areas of your life God bring resurrection and wholeness in this season? I don't know the answer to that for you. And maybe you don't know what it is right now either, and that's okay. But I know that most of us have lived long enough. I know I'm only 40 years young here this weekend, but we've lived long enough to know that every area in our lives that we pray for healing and wholeness, we do not experience that in this life. That is a reality. And I'm not here to tell you that I understand that. I know I've prayed for healing. I've prayed for freedom. That has not come. And I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to, to put that frustration lightly. However, the promise is that we have in Jesus this day when, yes, we will be with him. When he returns, it says all wrong things will be made right. There will be no more crying, no more death. Can you see the promises that even if Jesus doesn't heal now, healing always comes? It always comes. Absolutely not always in the timing that we desperately want. And I'm not making light of that at all. But, but the thing is, is that Jesus also brings healing and resurrection and life and wholeness now. I've seen it, so I can't deny it. Even though I don't understand the frustration, I've seen it. I've stood over here and prayed for couples who've said to me, our marriage is over. And years later, they're still here because there was resurrection. I have stood with people in hospitals, and we have prayed over people's bodies. And there has been things that have happened, and there has been healing, and the doctors can't explain it. But I've also been there when the doctors can explain how science and healing and medicine brought healing. And I say, hey, all healing's God's healing. We'll claim that too. Like I've seen it. And, and of course, I've been there when that hasn't happened too. But I've also been with people and just cried with them when they've been experiencing deep mental illness and pain and suffering and helped them to say, hey, what would it look like to get some help and support? and seek out therapists and medication or different things in their life, different tools, support systems. And I've also seen, I have, I've seen people miraculously healed supernaturally from a spirit of depression, anxiety in a moment. I've seen it. Most of the time, it's a combination of both Jesus and the therapy, though. But I'm going to say it, like, that is healing. That is resurrection in life right now. We've seen as a community how hopeless situations have turned around and reconciliation has come when you never would have expected in families that have been estranged or you never thought they could come back together. There has been miraculous levels of generosity that many of you don't even know about because people are so humble. And I'm like, that is the resurrection power of Jesus through people. And I know it's frustrating and I don't understand why healing and wholeness doesn't come to everyone who asks sincerely. And I'm never going to understand that. But I have seen too much to not believe that it's not still worth asking for deep healing and wholeness right now. I've seen too much. I've seen it happen. And we can let fear or timing or, or doubt overcome us, just like the humans did in the story. And we all are there sometimes. But I also think sometimes we get stuck in this idea that, well, what I'm dealing with isn't that big of a deal compared to these other people or this other situation. Where does that come from? The amount of times someone said to me, it's not that bad. I'm like, if we're talking about it, it's bad enough to pray about it. <laughs> this is the things that hold us back from recognizing we don't have to live in that spirit of competition. We can be set free from that spirit of despair 
that comparison, that pride, that arrogance, that apathy, we can be set free from those things. I've seen it happen. But we can come to believe that those aren't that big of a deal. Those are like kind of mild strongholds. This is not a comparison competition. For some of us, it's about being vulnerable. And I'm just going to be vulnerable with you right now. When I think about it, I'm willing to share things that happened recently, as long as I'm on this side of it. So let me just tell you really recently. When I think about strongholds in my life, one of the strongholds I have faced at different seasons, but particularly in this recent season, was a stronghold of anxiety in my life. Um, Some of you know that when I was a little kid, my dad was diagnosed with a lung disease when I was seven years old. So I grew up in a home with somebody who was dying and struggling to breathe. And when I was 17, I sat with my dad and I watched him take his last breath. And at the moment, his lungs completely failed him to no fault of his own. And so while we all had a different experience as we went through COVID and all that came with it, let me tell you, the anxiety that rose in me was so high. Because when you think about people, all people were talking about was a disease where your lungs will fail you to no fault of your own. That's enough to bring up some trauma and stuff that I have been dealing with, right? You can see that. But I'm going to be honest with you. It was tempting to think it's not that bad. I mean, look, other people are dealing with worse stuff right now. What's a few dozen sleepless nights, you know, and some stomach aches? Like, this is not that big of a deal. But trauma comparison was not the point of that. Healing and freedom and wholeness was the point. And I experienced it, but it's because I left no stone unturned. I reconnected with my therapist. I paid attention to my physical health habits, and I entered into some intentional time with my spiritual director and some mentors of mine who prayed for spiritual healing in the name of Jesus. And that's what I experienced, even though it took time. I believe that there's power when we pray in the name of Jesus. So I ask you, I shared in my life, but I ask you, what might it be in your life that God wants to bring resurrection and wholeness in in this season? There's probably something new for me too. I would love for us, I would just love for us to commit this Lenten season to just say, we're going to pursue together as a community, everybody, deeper healing and wholeness in our lives. What if we did that? What if we came together? Because this is actually really weighing on my heart, but I think in like a good way. If it's true that God's leading us into some new things as a church, doesn't it make sense that when people are living in more wholeness, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, you're more ready to join what God is doing in the world? I think that's what's at stake here. What's at stake is the kingdom of God and the passions and the purpose that God put in all of you and in us as a community to be ready to join in what God is doing. So let's leave no stone unturned, okay? We don't get to determine how or when God will bring healing or growth in our lives. We don't get to control that. But let's make that doctor's appointment. But let's reach out to that support team. Let's get that referral for a therapist. Let's be people who are willing to start that conversation with that family member and give up control. But before and after these important moves, let's pray with passion, believing that Jesus can be the resurrection and the life in these situations. Before, during, and after, we pray that that Jesus can be the resurrection and life and bring healing and wholeness in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our city. I believe that God can do this. I believe there's authority when we call on the name of Jesus. And so I just want to invite you to be so bold today as to open your heart to this question for the season of Lent. How might God want to bring healing and wholeness in your life? And would you be so bold to let someone pray for you today? It could be something that you don't even know yet. You can just walk up to somebody and just say, pray for wholeness. That's it. And they'll pray for you. 
like the anxiety that I had to pray for. Maybe it's something like that. But I want to say one more thing. I know that some of you have things in your life that you have long considered gone, dead and buried, wrapped in the grave, in the, in the grave clothes that you wrapped yourself. Things that you believe, proverbial things, where the death of a dream, the death of a relationship, or what you thought a relationship could be, the death of a purpose you once had, the death of a passion that's flame has been blown out in your life, and it's been a proverbial four days, and you have seen the stone cover the grave, and you're like, I'm not going in there because it could be bad. That's the kind of stuff that I know we have dead and buried that needs to be resurrected. We might have given up on a life free of fear and anxiety and depression, or you've given up on physical healing in your life, or you've given up on working through that addiction that that you know holds you back. You've given up on that person who's left you or left Jesus. You've given up. Do you believe that Jesus can bring resurrection to your life? Because if we trust Jesus as our Savior, we will experience full healing. We will. We know it's a promise. But let's pray to trust Jesus right now to bring healing in our lives right now. How amazing would it be if collectively we took the next 42 days until Easter to passionately pursue God's healing and wholeness in our lives and gave up the the control and the outcomes to Jesus and just trusted him with that. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I just got a couple invitations for you. The first thing is tonight we're going to have a Zoom call from 8.30 to 9. Okay, This is an information session about healing prayer. We've got people that can sit with you and do this, but you might just need a little more information. So if you go to the events page on the website, you can see that. Join that link. We'll be there short and sweet. Answer some questions. If you're curious about that, please let us know. Many people have experienced freedom from going through that kind of prayer process. But right now, I'm going to ask people who I've invited to pray to just come right now and to just on the wall here, around the back, even up here in front, just come because I'm really asking you. I know it's hard to ask for prayer, but would you be so bold? to let somebody pray for you this morning. Like I said, you can just come up and say, pray for, I'm praying for wholeness, I'm praying for healing. You don't have to give details, or you can. These people are ready to pray for you to just kick off this season together. We're also going to have our time of communion here. Here at Mill City, we celebrate communion every week. And it is a time when people uh, can remember that the night before Jesus died, just a few weeks after this story, he sat with his friends, and he took the bread and the cup, and he said, this is my body given for you and my blood shed for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. So as you come, whenever you're ready for communion, would you do this as a remembrance of the power that there is in the name of Jesus? The power that there is in the name of Jesus. And I'm actually going to invite you, if you're able, to stand right now. Because the song that we're going to sing is what I'm hoping is our collective prayer. These people are ready to pray for individuals. But the collective prayer that we have together, that we believe there's power in the name of Jesus, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So let someone pray for you. In fact, I'm going to go first. Watch me. I'm going to go and let someone pray for me. Nobody should be waiting. There should be somebody praying every time. Please be willing to let someone do that for you if you're at all willing. But together, can we all sing this song? Come for communion here, here in the back when you're ready. If it would be a service to you to bring communion to you, just wave somebody down. It's gluten-free. Everyone can participate. Come when you're ready, believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life.